Well, good morning and welcome to Get a Clue. And this series, we are trying to learn how to, well, get a clue about our own bad tendencies. We're learning how we love, and we're finding that inside all of us is a avoider on certain subjects, a controller in certain subjects, a pleaser, a vacillator, and even a tendency to feel like the victim. Now, last week, we gave out a tool that identified different intimacy needs and helped you figure out which tendency you might have. We had such a run on those that we decided to post all the tools online. So if you go to our website, horizoncc.com, backslash get a clue, all of the messages from the series will be there and all of the tools we give out will be there. So if you need to download that to your phone when you have a conversation with the son or daughter or a spouse, uh, feel free to do that. Those all come in PDF format. Now from this point on, each week we're going to specifically deal with one of these tendencies, knowing that you might be a pleaser in one relationship and an avoider in another. You might be a controller in one relationship, but you might find yourself being a victim in another. So each week we're going to deal with a particular love style. Today we're looking at the avoider. And in whatever area you're an avoider, I know I am in many areas, the avoider has a theme song. And his theme song is, I'm a rock. I'm an island. And you know the thing I like about that? Avoiding problems and avoiding conflict means I feel no pain. Let's listen. to avoid being accused is to be gone when the detective arrives. <laughs> That's just common sense. If I sense troubles brewing, you'll find me hiding in the library. It's the same at home. If there's conflict, I usually run and camp out behind a locked door. It's easier that way. The biggest mystery is why my wife and friends seem so needy and emotional, always wanting to talk about things. Ugh. These days, everybody's looking to change. Conferences, counseling, self-help books, etc. Not me. I'm content because I'm realistic. Stop expecting so much and, and living in the dream world of happy ever after. My wife should just ease up and Quit making everything into a discussion. Lower your expectations and we'll be fine.
Well, let's talk today about the avoider. There's a, a little avoider in all of us. With some of us, that's our primary way that we've learned how to love or not to connect. One of the first things you note about avoiders is that as an avoider, I have a tendency to see everybody else as needy. I don't think of myself as an avoider. If you're an avoider, you think of yourself as the adult in the room. Everyone else needs to grow up a little bit. Not be so needy, not want so much, not to have to have all these discussions. Kay, who wrote the book, How We Love, realized she was an avoider. And at 15-year point in her marriage, she was stuck, and they were stuck. And she began to explore why she was stuck, how she got where she was. And she realized she came from a good family, a family that encouraged one another, but it was usually based on externals. You're potty trained? Way to go! You, you hit a baseball? Whoa, way to go! You won the dance competition? Way to go! Her family was really good at applauding externals, but the motto of her family was, we don't do emotions. You certainly never cry in somebody in front of somebody. Go to your room if you're going to cry. You certainly don't grieve or talk about grief. We don't do emotions. As an adult who had been married 15 years, she began to realize that her self-righteousness of feeling like she was the adult in the room and her spouse needed to grow up and her kids needed to toughen up was one of the things that was causing conflict in her relationship. The second thing we'll note about avoiders is that avoiders either clam up or blow up. Because they want to avoid conflict... If you're a pleaser like me, you can sense when an avoider has something wrong with them. And so you say, hey, is anything going on with you? And the avoider always says what? I'm fine. See, you know this. And so they take a step back. I don't want to cause a problem. Don't want to cause any conflict. And there's something good in there, right? I don't want to lose my temper. I don't want to, I don't want to say something that's not going to work or something that's going to be harmful. So there's actually a good attribute to the avoider. They clam up so they don't say the wrong thing. So if you're a vacillator, you expect them to meet your needs, and so you push. You're a controller, you really push. You're a pleaser, you need them to be fine. And so you ask, and they clam up again. And they clam up, and you eventually find them hiding in some place in the house, and you say, we're going to talk about this, I don't think you're fine. And they go from clam up to blow up. Now why are they blowing up? Again, like I said, I'm a pleaser. My wife is an avoider, so we work on this particular dynamic a lot. And my wife would say, I know I'm going to hurt your feelings, so I'm trying to move away before I lose control. You still want to talk about it, and then you push me in a corner, and I lose control, and I hurt your feelings. This is not a good pattern, right? The reason the avoider avoids is number one, they feel inadequate. I don't know how to do what you're talking about. I don't know how to really encourage the way you need it. I don't really know what it means to comfort you the way you're asking for. I, 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 don't, I feel inadequate. Two, as I talked last week about as a pleaser, there's a real self-righteousness about I could handle my life better than you can handle your life. There's a real self-righteousness if you're really honest with yourself about being an avoider. You really feel deep down within you that it's inappropriate for your spouse to be so needy. Don't you really? You really think they should grow up and not need all this attention, this discussion. You really think if they grow up like you, your marriage would be fine. 
your family would be fine. And until you deal with that self-righteousness, that is, you're telling yourself that actually your way is better than their way, you're probably going to continue the dance. And thirdly, it's a sense of being inept. It's, you know, even if I did think it was appropriate, even if I did think that I could do it, I feel inept. I have no idea how I'd even start. So that's what we're going to address today. To do that, we're going to build on what we talked about last week. How do you become a detective of yourself? And how do you become a detective of other people? We're going to look at two mysteries and two applications. And here's my hope. You're going to have tools to answer that age-old question. I don't want you to fix it. I want you to listen. And you're like, what in the world does that even mean? We're going to try and answer that today. What does that really mean? How do you really do that? Two, I'm hoping that you can have less unproductive fights and therefore more healthy conflict that moves to resolution. First mystery. The first mystery is that what happens is the present is actually connected to the past. The problems in your marriage did not begin in your marriage. The patterns you've learned, you've learned for a long time, and there's a connection to the past. And so what we looked at is the idea that God designed marriage and family. Your family of origin was designed by God to be a place where you could be safe, where you would feel heard, where you would be seen. That you could feel in the context of your family that your parents would have invited you to explore your anger. They would teach you how to be angry, but not in inappropriate ways. How to grieve. There would be a place of encouragement. And we looked at this circle of needs. What the Bible's been saying for 2,000 years, modern day psychology has confirmed, here's what family was designed for. A child has feelings. He has needs. Those needs are recognized, welcomed within the family context. Not shut down. Third, the child is given full emotional spectrum to express those, to discover, learn what they're feeling and why. Surprise and overwhelming or anguish or betrayal. That you're teaching them how to explore and become a detective of themselves. And in that, the parental response is the parent's able to contain the child's need, show them how to express it appropriately, and boundaries on inappropriately. That there's teaching that goes on here in genuine care, love, and concern. That leads to a child's reacting by feeling loved, seen, heard, important. And that brings relief, trust, that family, that people, that other people is a place to express and process emotion and find relief. Talking really does provide answers. Now, if you're an avoider, you're thinking, well, that, none of that rings true to me. And because something happened during the cycle. And in the cycle, there was a break. And here's what it means to be imprinted with, from your childhood, an avoider style. Child's needs were overwhelming to your parent or parents. So either they're overwhelmed, they just, they're just trying to deal with their own life, let alone yours, and so your needs became a hassle. Not that they weren't good people, they just didn't know how to handle it. They didn't have the tools, they were too busy, or they just showed disinterest to your attention, your need for comfort, your need for appreciation. So you had to lower your expectations to your emotional exploration because they're not going to be met anyway. What did that lead to? Well, that led to... Your expression of those emotions got stifled or limited by your parent, not necessarily deliberately, but by what you experienced, which led to a parental response 
Your parents encouraged limited expression of emotion, and they certainly didn't give you any comfort or uh, meet those needs, which led to a reaction. A child restricts your emotions and needs and becomes independent, toughens up. Therefore, you avoid emotion and the needs of yourself, and ironically, you then avoid the needs of others because you don't want to pry into somebody else's life because you certainly don't want somebody prying into yours. So somebody else who wants you to pry into their life to get to know them, you feel it's inappropriate and you feel inexperienced to do it. Kay, who wrote the book How We Love, was exploring this very idea. And so she began to ask her mom, what kind of a baby was I? And her mom said, well, you were a a glum baby. A gl- who uses that word? A glum baby. He goes, a glum baby? Yeah, you were a glum baby. We're always trying to cheer you up, but we couldn't cheer you up. So there's an example where she couldn't be sad. The, the goal was always to fix you. So probably like me, I'm always trying to make everybody happy because I'm a pleaser. She said, well, well, did I have any trauma that happened, you know, in the first couple years of my life as I'm beginning to research this together? He said, oh yeah, you broke your collarbone when you were like nine months. But, you know, we had a philosophy as parents. We didn't coddle you kids. You had to toughen up and learn how to experience life. Starting to explain a lot, Mom. She said, in fact, funniest thing, when you broke that collarbone, you used to crawl out of your crib into your sister's crib and sleep next to her. As if maybe I needed human contact and comfort because I was in pain, right? And what she discovered is that pattern and that belief from her parents, don't coddle kids actually kept her from exploring, which turned into a voider that affected her ability to be a mom herself and to be the spouse she wanted to be. Now, I grew up in a family who was actually pretty good at that secure connection. I've got at least half a secure connector and a gigantically dysfunctional pleaser in me. And I married a family that was 50% avoider and 50% controller. So you can imagine, best family system and my family system had some very unique dances to it. So much so that at our wedding, I'm standing up at the altar, pastor here. It's my 21st birthday. I got married on my 21st birthday. The doors open, and here comes my beautiful bride, who I adore, that I love, and I have just been waiting for this day, praying for this day my whole life. As the doors open... And she begins to walk down that aisle. I begin to weep. (laughs) And not like, look at the little tear in his eye kind of weep. I mean like tears, 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 tears. I mean, I am like, you know, faucet on tears. And I'm laughing at myself because I'm kind of laughing at, wow, but I'm so in love with this woman. I'm so excited about this day that I am just gushing tears. I'm actually... You know, pulling out stuff to wipe my and Bess walking down the aisle like, don't do that. You're gonna make me cry. Don't do that. You're gonna make me cry. Don't do that. So, so I'm crying and I'm laughing at the fact I'm crying. These were truly tears of joy. So we get to the reception of a family half full of controllers and avoiders, and <laughs> it was hilarious because I'm walking around the reception, hearing people apologize for me. I think he's just really stressed. I think, you know, the stress of the wedding, there's a lot to coordinate. I think this sort of got out because you don't show emotions like this publicly. And uh, it's embarrassing. In fact, they were, they were embarrassed for me. Yeah. Because you don't show emotion. You don't get vulnerable. And every time you've been at a business meeting, every time you've gone to a funeral, don't you hear the same thing? The minute somebody gets emotional, what do they say? 
I'm sorry, I lost my... I'm sorry. You don't hear me say that. Because I think there's something powerful about showing emotions in front of people. There's something real about showing emotions in front of people. And they couldn't even fathom that there's a category that you could actually have tears of joy because maybe you were in love with somebody you were committing your life to. That was just unfathomable. So let's talk about our avoider from the Bible. His name is Isaac. Isaac is a master avoider. He's married to a, a woman named Sarah, but he also has a step uh, wife in our modern term, but he is a polygamist, despite God told him not to be, with Hagar. But we're going to talk about Isaac for a second, the avoider. Now, before we show how he was an avoider, I want to show you how he became an avoider. So his parents were the, the father of the Muslim, Christian, and, and Judaism faith. And this is where the Bible and Christianity is so unique from the expression of Judaism and Islam. That say, Abraham did it all right, go be like Abraham. Isaac was a great faith saint, be like Isaac. That's not what the Bible teaches. In contrast to Judaism and Islam, the Bible says that these are primarily dysfunctional people that God worked through. Versus the idea these are perfect people we're supposed to be like. You're going to find they are far from that. So how did he become an avoider? Well, let's jump into his past. Number one, his mother, Sarai, or Sarah, she had two names, was incredibly insecure and very, very volatile. Now, in one sense, I remember bringing Sierra home. She's 20 now when she was born. And I remember thinking, like, wow, they're sending me home by myself to raise this child. So I don't think any parent feels very secure. We have no idea what we're doing right? So I'm not faulting her insecurity, but wait till you see how she's learned to handle her anger. So his mother, number one, Hagar, her, her maidservant that she asked her husband to sleep with, and this doesn't go well, uh, had a child. Sarah's idea, by the way. But then Sarah saw that she had conceived. She had a baby when Sarah couldn't. Her mistress became despised in her eyes. I can't believe this. So Sarah dealt harshly with her. This term dealt harshly is the same term used of the Egyptians dealing with the Hebrew slaves. Which means Sarah, Abraham's wife, physically beat Hagar. We have a family of abuse in God's chosen people. They beats her and kicks her out of the house. She, Hagar, flees from her presence after being beaten. The Lord says to Hagar, and here's Hagar now, runs and hides like, oh God, help me. And here's where God, we see going through that secure connection. Here's a woman who needs support and harmony. Who needs somebody to deal with her grief and her hurt. And we see God doing exactly what a good parent does. He heard her and sees her. He says, Hagar, I've seen your affliction. I've seen the injustice that's occurred to you. And you're going to have a son and this son's going to get a blessing. His name's going to be Ishmael. And I've heard your prayers, and I've seen your distress. And here's what I want you to know. Because the Lord has heard your affliction, I'm going to work in your life as well, and in your son's life as well. And Hagar is so moved by a different type of family, unlike the family she's in. A family that hears, a father who hears, a father who sees. She names this place the Well of Beer. Well, it's actually Beer Haleroy, but it is beer. Which literally means this is the place where the living God heard and saw me. So Hagar, in contrast to Sarah and Abraham, 
she experiences a kind of secure connection of a God who hears and sees her and names the place the well of beer, that spot. Keep that in mind. Number two, Isaac is eventually going to be born, and when he's born, they no longer need Hagar. She's going to be kicked out a second time. So she gets kicked out with Ishmael, and now for years the family story, what happened to my brother? You remember the time that when you were born that your brother got kicked out? And what do you learn when you're in a family of abuse or a family that when you do something wrong, you can get kicked out? You learn to keep your mouth shut is what you learn how to do. Not to cause a stink and not to cause too much conflict. You're not going to get your needs met anyway. But even if you could get them met, the people in our family don't really know how to do it. Cast out the bondservant, second time, and the son, and the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight. So, Abraham the father doesn't like the fact that his son, Ishmael, and his second wife, Hagar, are being kicked out. It's very displeasing to him, but does he say anything? No. What do you think Isaac learned from dad? You might as well not speak up. Mom's just going to get mad, and she's just going to throw a temper, and she might beat you too. Three. When Isaac becomes an adult, after his mom dies, where do you think he chooses to live? Anywhere in the world, where could he live? But Isaac chooses, at the death of his mother Sarah, to move his family to a particular place. And the place is called the Well of Beer. Heleroy. Isn't it interesting that he would live in the very place that God met with his stepmother and his stepbrother? As if he's always been hungering for the kind of God who would hear and see us in distress, not kick you out. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in a cave. And Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And he dwelt at the God who sees and hears me's location. Now fast forward. He's now an adult. Jacob and Esau. He's an old man. Jacob and Esau have come in, and Jacob has dressed himself up to be Esau and stolen the blessing from Dad. Dad even checked. Are you sure you're Esau? You feel like Esau, but you sound like Jacob. Oh, yeah. Yes, I'm uh, definitely Esau. Gives him the blessing. Esau shows up. Esau's ticked off. I just lost the family fortune. Dad just rewrote the will. I'm going to kill him. And with all that conflict... You'd think even a non-avoider would say, I've got to address the fact that one of my kids is going to kill one of my other kids. But he doesn't. So his wife, the controller, kicks in, Rebecca, and she again says, we're not going to address this because we never address anything. I've got to control the situation. So she makes up a story. You know what? I'm so stressed. Oh, I just, I can't have Jacob here anymore. No, 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 no. We have to, I'm worried he might marry the wrong person. Yeah, that's what she worried about. And because he might marry the wrong person, let's send him away. Send him away to go live a far way away with, with Uncle Laban. So, realizing that Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing that happened, he says, after dad dies, Jacob's going to die. Therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise and flee to my brother Laban and Haran. So they call a family meeting. The family meeting looks like this. Jacob, come over here. Esau, come over here. And do you think he says, hey, son, you lied to me? That wasn't very appropriate. Son, I asked you twice who you were. We need to talk about this. Son, your brother's trying to kill you. You need to apologize. Do you think any of that gets addressed? No. Did it work when I my family growing up? No. What do you do instead? It says that Isaac 
blessed him. (laughs) Blessed him. And Jacob, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. And said, send him away. This is how we deal with issues. We send him away. We create distance. Now, do you see the connection between the past and the present? And I would imagine in your life, if you really want to become a detective, you need to explore what happened in the past that's led to these tendencies you have. Number two, the expectations and bad behavior you see in your spouse or your kids or your coworkers might be a reflection of your bad behaviors. I mentioned this book, How We Love, nine months ago when I was working on this series to begin with. Uh, after a sermon, a, a couple came up to me and said, what was the name of that book you mentioned? It was a very small side issue to the message that day. And I said, well, it's called How We Love. About a month later, he came up and he said, that book is changing our marriage. So why is that? My spouse always saw where I was wrong. And I, I've got plenty I have to blame with. But she never saw any areas she was wrong. She read through that book. And a couple days ago, we had a very hopeful conversation. She said... I really think I might be contributing to the problem too. And we actually took a weekend away to begin to walk through this material together. Because the bad things you see in your spouse, oh my goodness, my husband is such a control. That's exactly the problem in our marriage. That's a problem in our family. My, my, my wife is such an avoider. My husband's such an avoider. That's the problem in our marriage. But it's actually a dance. Because the more you control, the more they avoid. And the more you avoid, the more they control. And the more you control, the more they avoid. So this becomes the dance. And if you can change the dance, it really in marriage and family only takes one to tango. If you will become a little less avoiding, you can change the dance. A little less controlling, you can change the dance of your whole family. If you become a little less pleasing that you need everybody to be happy, it's okay to be sad or angry at times, you can change the dance. And it's going to be easy in this series to go, i got to give that CD to my son. i got to give that CD to my father. i got to give that CD to my spouse. It only takes one to tango. And the mystery is, if you will look at the thing you're doing and get a little bit better, it'll change the dance. If you look at our two married couple here, if you look at Isaac and look at Rebecca... Remind you who they are again on the screen. Who's who? So Isaac's our avoider, married to Rebecca, our controller. And so this is where their dance has worked against each other. She's controlling, he avoids. The more he avoids, the more she controls. The more she controls, the more he avoids. God wants all of us to make progress, and it will change the dance of your relationship and your entire family. So how? Well, let's look at two applications. We need to become a detective of ourselves and others. After I gave the message last week, a guy came up to me and he said, all last week my wife is elbowing me the whole time you're talking about comfort and understanding because we just had a fight, we're working on a project together, and she hurt herself and came looking for comfort, and I said, ah, shake it off. Because that did not go well. He said, what I realized is I'd be hammering roofing nails with my dad and I would miss the nail and hit the nail smash my thumb and I'd be oh as a kid and my dad would say you've got nine more and I realized I am comforting my wife the same way my dad comforted me after 40 years of marriage I've got to get better 
So how do we do that? Become a detective of yourself and of other people. So how do we become a detective of ourselves? Number one, I've got to spend some time in the study if I want to become a detective of myself. To realize I, I wasn't given the tools I needed to do this well, so I'm going to have to study myself. What do I feel and why? A tool that will help me figure out what I'm feeling and why, so I don't just answer fine. Or when I find myself saying fine, say, you know what, I'm not fine, but I really don't want to talk about it now. But tell you what, before we go to bed tonight, I'm going to give you two things I'm feeling that aren't fine. But it's going to require you to study. To learn about yourself what your parents didn't help you learn about yourself. To do that, I want to give you a tool. When you see that pattern that we talked about earlier of the avoider and you say, that's a lot what happened in me, we put in your program today a list of soul words. So the friend of mine who recommended this book a year ago to me, he said, Chad, I'm an avoider. I have no idea how I'm feeling. So I've given my wife permission, I've given my kids permission, that when they ask me how I'm doing and I say bad, they'll say, well, could we go a little deeper? I don't want to give them that permission, but I know I need it. So we keep this list, he said, on the kitchen table. And when I tell my wife I'm doing bad, she says, why don't we pull out the list? And I need time. I know, you avoiders are saying, this is the most horrible thing I've ever heard. This is like exactly the opposite of what I want to do. You can keep doing what you're doing. And there's two types of pain. There's the pain that you're currently having because family isn't working well and it's not going to get better. Then there's a kind of pain that says, I'm going to get a little better at this. And he would say, and this is a friend of mine, would be very anti-emotion as long as I've known him. And he's saying, it's been worth the process for me. I'm a better grandfather, I'm a better dad, and I'm becoming a better spouse. So number one, he says, I will pull out this list. I didn't even know there were these many emotions. And when I get to bad, I'll go down to bad or angry. So, you know, okay, I'm going to pick three. I'm furious. I'm grouchy. I guess I'm under overwhelmed. I'm confused. And like when you first learned to type, you remember how unnatural it felt? And you said, I, I can do this so much better, the hunt and peck method. You had to learn something that felt awkward, and you eventually got better than what you did before. This will not feel better initially, but you're saying, I, I, have, a, I have a woundedness here, I have a handicap here, I have a, a way that I wasn't trained here. This is what healthy people should be able to do. I can't yet, so I need a tool to help me. What are my top three? They recommend three steps in the book, which I think are helpful. Number one, you need to, number one, catch yourself avoiding. You're not going to catch yourself before you avoid. It's too ingrained. But you can catch yourself a day after you did it initially. Hey, you know the conversation we had? I'm doing that avoiding thing again. Then you get to the place you catch yourself an hour after you did it. Catch yourself ten minutes after you did it. But the first step is catching yourself in that pattern. Then, role play. Can we try that conversation again? And I'm going to try and be less avoiding. You asked me if I was fine. I said I was fine. But you're right, I really wasn't. Well, then how are you? I don't know. Let me look. (laughs) I'm feeling alone. And honestly, I'm feeling annoyed. Why? Because I don't want this conversation to go on. (laughs) Okay, well, before that, well, I was actually angry because I came home and I felt disrespected because... Get a little better. 
And here's what happens. If you can catch yourself and then say, let's just try a short conversation where I get a little less annoying or a little less uh, avoiding, you're going to start developing muscle memory because you've now heard yourself or seen yourself have a conversation where you're a little less than you were. And that's going to put some muscle memory in you to go, oh, I can do this a little better than I currently did. Now, here's what's going to happen. Here's why it's worth it. Because you're like, oh, this is horrible. Here's why it's worth it. Number one, when you do that, just a little step difference in your dance, the fear and anxiety in your spouse is going to go down. The fear and anxiety in your kids are going to go down. You remember that emotional cup we talked about? That emotional cup is when your family's needs aren't met, they feel hurt and disappointment, then anger and resentment, and then fear and anxiety. If they see you even attempting to make a change, this is different. Different is good. Their fear level is going to go down. Their anxiety is going to go down. And you know what happens if that goes down? Look at the top layer. There's going to be more room in your marriage, more room in your family, more room in your company for positive emotions. He can change. He might be starting to get it. She might be starting to understand. Just a little change gets a lot of fear down. But to become a detective of yourself, you need to become a student of yourself, and you're going to have to spend some time in the study. Now, Isaac goes through this process in his life where God begins to work with him and work with him and work with him. One example is where God meets him to show him what secure love means. I mentioned last week, God says, despite your lying, despite your avoiding, despite your dysfunctional family, I want to bless you a hundredfold. And it says that he began to prosper and he kept on prospering until he became very prosperous. God says, you can have, an, you might have financial riches, you might have uh, savings riches, but you don't have relational riches. If you want prosperity in the things that matter, you've got to do the hard work of learning how to spend some time in the study. Now, Isaac tries these same tendencies at work. He's at work one day, and there's two herdsmen. The herdsmen over here are fighting with the herdsmen over here because there's not enough room for them to, to get all their sheep. And he's like, oh, I just can't stand it. So he names the place Ezek, which means contention. It's just contention everywhere. I, can't, I, I always try, I, I leave home and there's contention at work. I leave. Another group of, of people start fighting. Oh, they start fighting. He names the place they're fighting Sitna, which means strife. Here's the thing about avoiding. If you're going to have human beings in context anywhere, there's going to be conflict. There's difference of opinion, different of background. And look what he does. He just moves away. And he moved from there. He moved from there. He moved from there. And he moves to a place that he names Rehoboth, which means open spaces. For God will make me fruitful in the land. Which is his way of saying, yep, see, God has honored my avoiding. And I'm now fruitful in the open spaces. Here's the thing about family. You're like, no, 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 we're empty nesters. We've got a big house still, and I spend my time in the craft room. He spends his time in the garage. Let me tell you, we're doing fine. And you can. You can actually have a marriage with two avoiders, and they can have a very successful marriage until one of them has a cancer. And one starts expressing emotion, and the other one has never seen this for 30, 40 years. And all of a sudden, a marriage that eventually you're just cohabitating together, you don't know how to relate to each other. God wants to make you fruitful in your marriage, but in order to do that, you're going to have to do the hard work. And that hard work means you're going to have to spend some time in the study. Two, you need to become a detective for other people. And one of the ways to do that is you need to learn how to use the candlelight, not the limelight. See, if you're married to an avoider or raising an avoider, 
our problem is we use the spotlight. Tell me about your day. Give me your daily report. I want to know what you felt, how you feel it, where it's at. And you know what? An avoider is a lot like a cockroach. You turn the lights on and they're out of here. So we need to become more subtle as pleasers, as vacillators, and learn how to use the candlelight, not the limelight. And to say, I'm going to, instead of demanding a daily report, I do want to know. I want to enter your world this time we enter me. And so I want to give you some tools on how to use the candlelight to be okay if you're a pleaser that everyone doesn't have to be fine. As a vacillator, sometimes you have to communicate to somebody who didn't grow up knowing what needs are, what your needs are. And the candlelight, again, I want to give you this tool. It's even use this. If this is a tool you can use with your family. Instead of saying, how was your day? Because we always give reports on our day, but not how you felt about your day. How would you feel about your day? And have your kids take a moment and look at the list. And to pick two or three categories. What feelings did I have today? On a scale of one to ten, how strong were those feelings? Now already for some of you, you're saying, Chad, that's the limelight. It's too much. Pick one emotion then as your start. Just one emotion. Just say, how did you feel about your day? Scale one to ten, how strong was it? There's a verse in the Bible from both James and from Psalms, I think, that are important here. Psalm says, God, I need you to help me. Search me and find any anxious way within me. Which means we need God and other people to search us. When you see bad behaviors coming out of you, you need to search underneath and figure out, what am I feeling and why? And the goal of a spouse, the goal of a, a, a boss, the goal of a friend is to actually do what James says. We are to be slow to anger, slow to speak, but swift to hear. We need to be better listeners. We need to have better listening training. If you're going to become a detective of somebody else, you need to know how to listen well. So on the second side of this page is the answer to the question, how do you listen and not fix? And I've given it to you in six questions. Now, for some of you, that is going to be overwhelming. So tiptoe into it by just trying two. First, share with me one uh, thing that's stressing you out or causing you to have feelings. And what you're doing as they're talking is you're trying to identify what they're feeling. Sounds like you're angry. No, it's not really angry. Sounds like you're grouchy. Don't call me grouchy. All right, sorry, sorry. Um, Sounds like you're... But you're trying to identify what the feeling is, why they're feeling it, and where they need support. We talked about last week. Now, if you're an avoider, you don't want people prying into your life, so you assume people don't want you prying into their life. You're going to have to reject that lie. People do want you to pry into their life. And here's how you do it. You're not prying, you're caring. Second question. Hey, of the soul words, what's going on with you? Please list your top three emotions, honey. What's going on? What are your top three, do you think? Really, you're, you're feeling anguish? What are you feeling anguish for? Betrayed? Tell me about that. And these just give you a series of questions. They rate those feelings. Betrayal, like scale 1 to 10. An 8? Follow-up questions. How often have you felt this way? And so literally, and, and then it's going to feel a little clunky, like you're learning how to type. Use the tool. Honey, I know I'm not good at this. I'm going to use this tool because I'm not good at this. And me using this is going to feel a, um, a little bit formal, but it sure beats how bad I am at doing it without the tool. And give each other the grace to get better. Did you experience these feelings as a child? You know I did. It's the hammer in my dad. 
How did you manage these feelings? At some point, if you're an avoider, jumping from one to five is going to feel very much in the deep end to you. But I want you to say, if you just try a little bit of this tool, you're going to have kids not saying what every teenager I've ever heard being a youth pastor for 15 years said, my parents never listen. Because instead of listening for 10 minutes, we judge, we evaluate, we redirect. So we've talked about four things today. One, the past is linked to the present. Two, the reflection of the bad expectations or behaviors you see in your kids or your spouse is actually a reflection of the bad behaviors you're doing as well. So begin with yourself making a change. Say, God, search me and find my anxiety. God, help me learn to be a better listener. I can only listen for one minute before I get defensive. How can I listen for two minutes, five minutes, even ten minutes, and genuinely try and identify not how I'm reacting to what he's saying, but how they're feeling, what, why, and where they need support. Spend some time in the study learning about yourself and learn how to use the candlelight to meet our kids, our spouses, and our coworkers where they are. But it doesn't start with handing a CD to them. It starts by looking in the mirror. Well, you know, there's two kinds of well of beer you can spend some time at. You can medicate the emotions you've never dealt with at the well of beer, or you can learn about the well of Behilaroi, the God who sees and hears and wants to help us make that kind of change. Let's pray together. Father, God, we are not good at this stuff. And God, we come collectively and look at your family of faith that you started this whole thing with, and we feel kind of good about ourselves that we're not alone. And that you love working with broken people. And so, Father, we ask you give us courage to make that change, courage to look in the mirror. And, Father, you would begin that process by being the God who is the Behilaroi, the God who sees and hears, the living God who wants to start us where we are and turn us into the kind of people you've made us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all next week as we talk about Captain Controller.